Hello everybody and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host Stephen Platt, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, we're in the middle of summer here in Australia, so we've decided let's go somewhere cold. We're going all the way to Minnesota, don't you know, as we watch Fargo. It's turning 25 years old. It's directed by the Coen brothers. And I have two guests, one who has seen the film before and one who has not. I guess who has not seen the film. Uh, back, it's 2021, baby, and it's Simon Haynes. Oh, God, it's lovely and frosty here in, was it Minnesota? Yeah. Yeah, I can't, I can't see the sun and the dry heat outside for all the snow. Yeah, no, it's, uh, somehow it's snowing, despite the fact that it's 41 <laughs> degrees Celsius today. <laughs> Whoosh. Um, how, how you been, Simon? Uh, I'm kind of glad that last year's done and dusted with, and I'm looking forward to this year being done and dusted with. Already? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Rough January. Um, oh, yeah. Six days in and the world's already exploded at least once. Yes, that's true. Uh, listeners who are uh, listening to this when it comes out in early February, um, <laughs> we... We're recording this in advance because of the Fringe Festival coming up here in Perth, uh, which means that if something has gone... Like, we don't know who the American president is. We know who it should be, (laughs) but we don't know what's happened. So you'll have to forgive us if we don't make any timely references to anything that's happened uh, between now and the start of February. Uh, But moving on from that, Simon, you have not seen Fargo. I know, I know. Uh, I feel... (laughs) I keep trying to rationalize it, but honestly, part of me is just like, I feel like like if I had actually gone around to watching this, I maybe could have like finally completed that step to like film nerd. Mm-hmm. And yes, even though I've actually watched Conan, God, you got me in last time for, um, not last time, last time, but like you've got me in for Burn After Reading, mm-hmm. another Conan's film. I profess a love for Big Lebowski, so I just don't know. Mm. I've just not seen it. So what do you know about Fargo? Uh, it's, I think it's like a small town murder mystery type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's got a lot of really good actors and I'm not saying that just cause I can see the screen with a, with a list of someone in there, but, um, it, cause it's Cohen on part of me is going, I wonder if this is just going to meander and go nowhere in a very interesting way, or is this actually going to have a, a story arc? Mm. Well, we will find out shortly, but luckily we have someone who has seen the film before. Uh, welcome back to the program, Alex McVeigh. Yay! What, what is this, 2019? What are you doing here, Alex? <laughs> See, my, my defence is that there was no year between 2019 and 2021, so it really it's jump. not that long since I've been here. No, true, that's true, <laughs> yes. Uh, it's, it's been a while since you've been on, Alex, so um, how, how have things been for you the last 18 months? Uh, things have been fairly well. Obviously, since watching Aladdin for the first time, my life has changed. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, which... A whole new world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, listeners, you're in for a treat this episode. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, to Nicola's delight, I'm sure my life has been uh, markedly better since watching uh, Aladdin. Uh, not that I've gone back and re-watched it. I think once was, was plenty. Um, but the last 18 months has been wonderful. Thank oh, you. good. I'm That's really, good I'm really glad to hear that. Um, so you have seen Fargo. I have. It's been a number of years. So mm-hmm. I was um, saying briefly before that Fargo was one of the films that I watched when I was digging my way through the art house section at the local video store at mm-hmm. one point, And I watched my way through the Tarantino films. We were bonding over Jackie Brown earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I think I watched The Big Lebowski as well. Things like that, that I otherwise wouldn't have you know, usually on the new release section. Decided to pick up Fargo, watched it, loved it, 
couldn't tell you too much about it more than it's a small town murder <laughs> mystery, which is what Simon already knows. Um, that's just cultural osmosis, just like it's just feeding in. You know what? That's that's all you really you've you've had the nutshell version of Fargo. <laughs> But I can say that Frances McDormand makes the film and mm. that really watching her performance is probably the bit that I remember the most. Yeah. She's very entertaining. I remember it being a very light entertainment sort of black comedy. Mm. And William H. Macy, I think, is also very good in it. Mm. And I know he does a lot of stuff, but my frame of reference for William H. Macy is the film Mystery Men. Oh, oh yes. I love Mystery Men. Right. I now, saw that in the cinemas a little bit loved it. a little bit obscure and not I don't know that it's been reviewed on this podcast. Not it's yet. probably not the type of film that gets an awful lot of attention. I but dig. I dig well. It's it's good. It's um it is a film that we had on video that we just watched over and over as kids and William H. Macy is uh he's got a pretty dark not dark comedy, um, very straight faced sort of mm. comedic. Oh, he's the great straight man. Mm. Yeah. So uh, add a couple of amazing Minnesotan accents into this film, mm. which, by the way, Simon, you have this to look forward to. You'll be speaking like that for the oh, next God. week or so once you've seen this movie. Oh, good day, Marge. Mm. Jeez. Oh, jeez. Hi, gotta, Norm. Hi, Norm. <laughs> I got to record a podcast tomorrow, and it's just like, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> so looking forward to seeing it again. Excellent. Yeah, it's it's been a similarly for me. It has been a long time since mm. I've seen Fargo. I I watched it, as I did it, I think, um, quite a lot of the big important films I watched when I did my film undergraduate mm. at university. Uh, it was one of those like films that the lecturers put on and said, y- you need to watch this, this is important. Um, and I remember watching it and going, it's really good. Uh, but a-, a bit like you, Alex, I, I remember very little... Uh, of this film. <laughs> I, I remember Francis McDormand being good. I actually remember Steve Buscemi being really good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember a wood chipper. And that's about it. <laughs> oh, I forgot about the wood chipper. Um, so I'm, I'm having immediate flashbacks to Deadpool 2. Mm, yeah, well. Oh, I think I think um, Deadpool 2 maybe took inspiration from <laughs> it would not surprise. this a little bit. It's, yes, yeah. well, with all that being said, shall we watch Fargo? Yep, sure. For those of you listening at home, pop in those DVDs or load up those streaming services and prepare to say, oh, geez, a lot as we watch Fargo. Jeez, welcome back to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, don't you know? Uh, yes, we have just been to Fargo, uh, and that's why we all now have authentic Minnesotan accents. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. I joined once again. Oh, jeez, I just flew in from Fargo, and my arms are tired, you know. <laughs> Fargo Island or Fargo, Minnesota? I, it was from very far ago. <laughs> I'm joined once again by Alex McVeigh and Simon Haynes. And Simon, that was your first time watching Fargo. It indeed it was. What, what do you think of it? I loved the loving hell out of the dungeon. <laughs> oh, jeez. I'm, I'm not sure I was supposed to be laughing that much, but <laughs> jam, damn it, I, that was fun. Yeah, for, for viewers at home, Simon was laughing through the murders. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> there was, there was moment, some particular moments where I was thinking, I don't think that's a punchline, Simon, but he was having a great well, time. I think it's really interesting because this is a very funny film. It's oh, a yeah. fantastic yeah. film. Yeah. Yep. And I think that murder in this film is, is, is funny 
through farce. Yeah. I think the farce of the murders of, um, particularly the characters that we get to know who get killed, mm. their murders are quite farcical. I think some, obviously some of the murders on the road um, yeah. with the state trooper and the two witnesses, um, that was um, that wasn't funny. And that was actually quite scary. No, and they're... I think they, 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 the Coens are doing in this what they are now super well known for doing, which yeah. is balancing humour and high stakes tension um mm. and it's really interesting watching this this film because well there is it, a true it, thing it, yeah. about when it comes to something like a horror or comedy it's always that thing of tension and breaking and there's only two ways you can react you either react with shock or with laughter yeah and this one i'm watching this going I can't, i'm not shocked by this because mm. like part of me is just like going yeah, i'm waiting for it to happen because mm. because it's the coen brothers yeah and also like you know the cop pulls the bad guys over. You know he's not walking away from this, mm. and you know it's going to be an escalation of a uh, of a uh, tension. Mm. And then the car, the car drives past, and it's like, oh no! Yeah. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong, and it's brilliant. Yeah, Alex, this was your first time watching it for a while. Yeah, it would have been a good. I would have watched it early uni days, so mm. it could be as much as eight, nine, ten years since mm. I've seen it. Uh, yeah, so it holds up. Well? Which I, I feel like is my first sentence for most of the films that I come back to watch that I'm the person who's saying, it holds up. Yeah, It does. Well, I mean, the way it's shot is mm. really um, quite impressive on a... It's a 25-year-old film at the time of recording. And I think what they've done really well is 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 not try and date it with specific camera techniques mm. um so the cinematographer this is roger deakins who is um, yeah. one, one of the best in the business okay and i feel as though a lot of the way that this film is shot is um done in such a way that not only is the setting semi-timeless the date is never specified um although i believe some people have worked out it's meant to be around about 1987 um but it's sort of got a timeless it could be anywhere from the early 1980s to the mm. mid 90s when it was shot mm-hmm. Um, but the way that it's filmed, it doesn't seem to be following a lot of obvious trends of like '90s films, mm. or particularly '90s crime films. Yeah. Um, oh, right. okay. So, like, if you compared this to something like Seven, um, yeah. Seven is a really great film, but it's got a lot of the um, a lot of the sort of genre-defining camera techniques of like is this a, a sort of awkward angle like the ops, yeah yeah or like a little bit of the handheld, not going full Paul Greengrass where it's shaking all the time, or even that like you know the um, was a like kind of the um, the yellow haze kind of yeah. thing, like the eeriness. You know, you're adding oh, yeah. color to the thing, and I think uh, Coen Brothers really didn't start messing around with a lot of that stuff until was it uh, Oh Brother Where Art Thou? Yeah, but they really started is... to ramp up their digital photography mm. stuff. Whereas the way this film is shot is a lot of it is shot in very um, subtle ways. I would say mm. so. For example. There's there's a few shots that are really like this is a pretty shot like the shot of um, Jerry's car in the middle of the snow yeah and he's walking up to it and because it's so snowed all you can see is the car and the plant pots that are sort of spacing mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. the car shots but it looks like a, a vertical painting mm-hmm. as and opposed to a horizontal and it's also plane. like the contrast between the um, the dark blacks it, it doesn't even look like there's any color in there it's mm. just like literally just white and black yes. Mm, and they, they do it time and again they create these really lovely set pieces I particularly liked the shot of the car that had crashed that had witnessed um, Gaia mm. uh, murdering the state trooper and then when his car pulls up the way 
both the crashed car and um, Gaia's car light that scene and there's nothing else. There's there's mm. no like official lighting. You know, there's not a bunch of gaffers on there <laughs> like with with big LED bulbs or anything yeah. there. It's it's all light that's generated within the scene, um, which just creates this wonderful black, white, and a little bit of red color effect mm. um, for for when he comes in like a harbinger of doom and, and mm. murders the two witnesses. It, it's really effective at doing that. It also does the coziness really well, though. Mm. Yeah. Um, whenever I watch this film, I forget how much that some a bit of me would like to live in the snow. <laughs> I, I, I love living in Australia, and I love the, the very summery conditions. Um, and I much prefer uh, having to deal with, oh, it's too hot, to, it's snowed in, and I might die. But, um, <laughs> but can I tell you, the yeah. snow is looking real good right about today. It, yeah. it, well, it is. But <laughs> yeah. also, this sort of coziness, it reminds me of, I used to live in the north of England, and it used to get snowed in quite a lot where we were. And it does remind me of some of those like lovely, cozy feelings, uh, particularly anything to do with Norm and Marge and their yeah. life. I was going to say, like the Marge shots are very particular. You know, the, the palette is very warm. The mm. cinematography is usually close. And like, yeah, the shots between Norm and Marge, they're always close together. They're framed very close together. And so you've got that intimacy and they're always eating. <laughs> How many burgers does she eat in a film? Is it just, is it two? Because she has one of the, in the station. Yeah. yeah. And then she has... Uh, she goes to the she has drive through. Drive through. Was that a burger? Because it looked like it had chocolate on it. <laughs> like it was, it it might have been like very oh. shiny bread. Oh, okay. It, it looked be. more like a waffly dessert. I don't know. I lost track of. But she ate a lot of good food. food. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, she's seven months pregnant. It's established. <laughs> like she she allowed guys like get get in it. But it's the only time that it's really relevant at all. The pregnancy. This is what I find really interesting about it is that it's not it's not relevant to the plot. And I kind of love that about mm-hmm. it. Um, the extent that she asks to sit mm. down yeah she like she's got a load like, yeah but it's she's carrying a load whenever she's doing that to jerry it's such a power move because she sat down before she asks yeah like she sits down and is like can i sit down and he's yeah. already on edge and he's just like i guess so um, i kind of was waiting for a bit more of that power play between the two of them i mean i'm not expecting like an, as a no it's a color browser i wasn't expecting that was going to be the thing but it's just that thing of like if this was anything she'd be grilling him but she's almost just like Oh, I don't really. I, you know, she. It's almost like she's oblivious to the surrounding area. Yeah. She she looks at the paper for one bit, but she doesn't really seem to grok what's going on. And then as soon as he, she sees him leaving, that's all of a sudden it's like the son of a bitch. Yeah, I love that. The the acting in this film, I think, is kind of where we really need to uh, yes. hone in on to begin with, because mm-hmm. this is very much a film for good actors doing good work. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's start with Frances McDormand because she is the the star of this film even though she's not in the first third of it probably doesn't mm. even have that many lines mm. i think jerry has significantly more lines mm. really much it feels good. like it it feels like it'd be interesting to see a count of it but she doesn't really well jerry is the point of view character for at least the first third of the film he is the person that creates the inciting incident and so like it's natural that we want to follow him but then it just yeah it just takes this weird turn and we start to follow the investigator and it's and you just get the sense that she just doesn't really know what's going on she's just doing her job following it and it's just yeah i'm just doing my job that's it i love it yeah it's not that thing of like i must bring down the criminal make my states i don't think we ever get a feeling that she's ignorant in any way like no, she's no, no, definitely no. confident in what she's doing she's just doing her job and she's I love doing it. i think she sets it off very very quickly when uh, her colleague makes a comment about 
the the license plates and she says mm, i don't think that's very good police work there you know i think we should do this and that's all it is the film for her it's just good police work it's yeah. matter she's of fact. following it's leads great. it's oh yeah i think it's this i think it's hmm. that oh it'd be strange if she gets if, to the crime scene and goes well there's a big guy because he's got big feet he did this and hmm. then oh there's a little guy because he's got big feet and it's great police work she's a small town cop as well yeah. which um you know is is partly why i think she is the police chief there because she's clearly the most competent mm. like no one around her is incompetent no, you know no. there isn't somebody but it's just a small town yeah this thing doesn't happen yeah there isn't somebody called like butterfingers who's <laughs> spilling coffee over himself and going oh it's my first day like there's no one like that but there's as someone who's reviewing a cop movie in mm. the frame of robocop where it's just like high stage high stakes high tension you know mm. there's an actual criminal mastodon it's great to see this kind of movie where it's just like oh yeah I'm just do my job yeah i wouldn't have thought this and robocop have too much in common <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got. I got to get. Oh, a you have sixty seconds to comply, don't you know? Uh, <laughs> Thank you for giving a plug to my podcast. You're most welcome. Uh, yeah, sixty <laughs> seconds to comply. It's my favourite podcast about RoboCop. Exactly. Ding. Uh, yes. Yeah, so Frances McDormand, I think, does does obviously a fantastic job. She's given this wonderful character that we don't often get to see mm. in police films, who is a woman, for starters, <laughs> um, uh, but a woman who is not traditional i'd say it's more of a crime in tv cop shows but you know that's sort of um super confident and like in her 20s but like a real ball buster and like no she's she's seven months pregnant you know she's happily married to norm who's Mm -hmm. just his whole arc in this film is just he wants to do better than his rivals in the painting for stamps competition so good and and like I, i really like the fact that at no point does her job define her which i feel Mm. is something that happens in a lot of cop shows to all cop characters regardless of gender Mm. she is the chief of police but she's not going around going like we've got to do this because this town is all about law and order she's just going up to the crime scene and going oh he's he's a nice looking boy too yeah usually if it's like a cop show that's in a small town it's like there's no crime here and we've got get down to the bottom of this Mm. it's like oh yeah there's a triple homicide whereas she Mm. goes from the homicide to get bait for norm (laughs) yeah before she gets back to the police station (laughs) gotta get some night crawlers you know yeah (laughs) yeah like that's her priority is (laughs) is making sure that norm's that was just on her to-do list to do today uh, I don't imagine triple homicides happen very often in Brainerd, but mm, yeah. there you go. It's almost like like Jerry's own worst nightmare towards the end because it's all unraveling, and then as soon as he sees the cop turn up, it's like, oh no, yeah, I'm I'm boned. Yeah. Um, so speaking of Jerry, uh, William H. Jerry, Macy, Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H Macy. Um, at one point in this film, I realised what it was that I really like about him, and it's that William H Macy is a cowardly Mark Hamill. Like, yeah. <laughs> he looks a bit like Mark Hamill. So it's kind of like if, if Luke Skywalker grew up for another 10 years and then from the end of Return of the Jedi and then... If the droids didn't turn up. Yeah, yeah. He just got really <laughs> self-conscious and started trying to do a scam. Uh, but he, he's, he's really wonderful because there's a quality to watching the character of Jerry that just makes you feel a bit icky like you were, yeah. talking, you were referring to it as like secondhand cringe I yeah there's a yeah. second i can't remember the phrase but there is a phrase that describes feeling cringe on someone's behalf and if there you're watching is, a particular, it. yeah oh, and i feel like anytime he was talking we just felt cringe the scene where he was calling to report his wife even the oh, opening scene where so he's good. having the conversation with steve buscemi just feels so much cringe for him 
he must be a bit of a psychopath. He clearly has no emotion at all and mm. no guilt for what's well, going on. I'd say more of a sociopath. Because, yeah, he has no real remorse for anything he's no. doing. And it's almost the fact of the only thing he's scared of is being caught. Mm. Uh, vicarious embarrassment is the official term. Yeah, that sounds oh, very right. Secondhand cringe. Um, <laughs> I prefer secondhand cringe. I if do we too. Stick with so that, we're going to stick with that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, he, he, he is just someone who is making all decisions out of a combination of greed and cowardice and i think that that makes for some really quite funny moments mm. um you know that the fact but the fact is is that his actions cost the lives of several people yeah. um obviously his wife who is maybe the funniest kidnapped victim i've seen in a film um, <laughs> i feel as though that because it's one of those things where again it, without there having been as many Coen Brothers films as, as we have nowadays in the mid-90s when you're watching this, mm. I think they make quite a good choice to show that there are elements of humour that come through accidentally. So like mm. the fact that if you've been kidnapped and you've got a bag on your head and you get the opportunity to, to run away, you a lot of people are going to try that. And I like the fact that they sort of showed the reality of it, which is, well, what you're going to do now, where she's sort of tripping over and trying to get away. Mm. I think it's also because at that time, we're not, because she's a kidnapped victim, but in a kidnap that's been set up by the husband. I remember watching it for the first time. I assumed that Jean was going to be fine. Yeah. I assumed that she was going to survive the film, and she doesn't. Um, actually, her death kind of gets very blown over when yeah. she's no longer relevant to the plot. Um she pretty much gets fridged. Yeah. Uh, it was very cold. But yeah, she, <laughs> she, she does get fridged, basically. She, it, it, what is fridged? Okay, so fridged is a term that comes from comic books where um, a female like love interest or like a girlfriend uh, gets killed to enhance another character, typically like the male, male character. So it comes from um, uh, an article written by Gail Simone, one of the best comic book writers out there, back before she became a comic book writer, and was based off um, when Green Lantern's girlfriend... Uh, the new Green Lantern's girlfriend got literally killed Reynolds, and stuck right? in a fridge. Ryan Reynolds of the Green Lantern? No, this uh, is from a comic book. From comic books. So yes. this is when Carl Rayner became Green Lantern back in the uh, early like 1992-93 when Howard Jordan went insane and killed the entire Green Lantern Corps. <sighs> Sorry. And so not Ryan Reynolds? No, not Ryan Reynolds. This is, this is pre-Ryan Reynolds. This is the this, comic book. So yeah. yeah, Ryan Reynolds played Howard Jordan in the movies, but it's that based on the Silver Age Green Lantern. Oh God, I am Green Lantern in the Green Lantern ring as well. Yes, sorry, Simon. I'm getting, so we, we can allow two minutes on Green Lantern okay. in every I episode. I think I spoke about five minutes worth of Green Lantern more <laughs> in two minutes. So yeah. yeah. So yeah, fridging is basically, yeah, killing off a female character to enhance another person, but usually those characters have no personality. They mm. only exist to be murdered. So... I like Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, he's great. I'm glad that's what you took out of it. Um, yeah. You know, he was in Deadpool as well, which is another... I think that's based on a comic book, isn't it? Yes, it definitely yeah, is. Being slightly facetious. And, we get, <laughs> and, and Deadpool 2 has a wood chipping scene. Yeah. Um, Tying it back! Which, all of we, the best films do. We will get to the wood chipper. Uh, but I do feel as though um, we should discuss who ends up in the wood chipper, which ah, is Steve Buscemi. Steve Buscemi. Um, who, who I assume has a name beyond Steve Buscemi in the film, but we only call him Carl. Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Carl. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He's he is Steve Buscemi though. He's, he's kind playing, of funny looking. Yeah, he's yeah. <laughs> in he's the sure. general kind of this way. This is like peak nineties Steve Buscemi when yeah. he had the um, Van Dyke and he had that little kind of Weasley persona that yeah. pretty, pretty much permeated through all of his movies of the time. Yeah, he's playing this character in like twenty films and mm. it works. You know, he's he's just doing fantastically well. It's really fun to see Steve Buscemi get mad because I feel like Steve Buscemi getting mad 
is it's like it's like watching Joe Pesci get mad, except you're not going to get hurt. That's <laughs> that's what it feels like. Is it's exactly his, right. Yeah, his characters feel less dangerous. You feel like Joe, uh, yeah, Joe Pesci is just going to fuck you up. Yeah, pardon my French. This is a yeah, it's an R-rated kind of, film. Yeah, yeah. No, I remember, no. I usually don't. I, I swear more on my own podcast. Yeah, but um, yeah, you get some date. You, you you feel like Joe Pesci's gonna mess you up like even at home alone i'm worried like yeah like even when he's playing a good guy he's just thinking this guy's gonna snap and break Mm. your neck Mm. whereas steve buscemi there's little puppy because he because he plays those weasley characters so well he plays the type of person that i think as an audience we enjoy seeing life shit on yeah and he gets tremendously shat on in this film yeah Um, i'd i'd forgotten until it happened that he gets shot in the face. Shot in the face. <laughs> yeah, it's just such an awkward place to be shot. Yeah, because he's he's bleeding basically for the rest of the film uh, from that from that wound. He's, and his to face be fair, is going pale as well from the blood loss. So the yeah. makeup's like really mm, on point. I feel like that might be his base color as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've seen Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's he's so good though, and I think that the balancing him, the character of Carl, who's very chatty, who's like a big talker. But kind of can't back it up a lot of the time. Yeah. Like, like Shep beats the absolute crap out of him. Um, like, and ultimately, obviously, he gets killed by um, Gaia. But counterbalancing him with the character of yeah. Gaia, this sort of almost silent Swedish assassin. What I enjoy wonderful. about this film, I think you can talk about their relationship, Carl and, and Gaia. Um, it's a juxtaposition, but it's not a juxtaposition because it's not stark enough to be a juxtaposition. Mm. And if you compare Marge's home life to what they're doing, murdering and, mm. you know, pillaging, that's the, juxtap- ju- that's the juxtaposition. It is, but again, it's not a very stark one because mm. they never do a very hard cut from one to the other no, to make no. it very but, obvious. But they do do they transitions. Kind of they yeah. do, do but, but they transition it, I feel like, in a fairly subtle way. The comedy, the, the drama, the um, macabre aspects, the comedic mm. aspects, I feel like it's intertwined quite nicely it never feels like a stark yeah. there are two mm. occasions that i can rem- remember where we transition from carl and gaia to norman marge through watching television mm. where there there's oh, the, the actual, cockroach yeah the, the, and then yeah. the the hotel sex yep. scene where they're, they're the, the first hotel sex <laughs> scene where they're with the prostitutes and then it hard cuts to them after having sex where the four of them are just in bed watching TV mm. and we see what's on the TV and then when we return to who's watching it it's it's at Norman Marge's house mm. and I feel as though that, that that is a really interesting comparison because these are two relationships that are essentially domestic relationships uh, obviously Marge and Norma in a loving marriage that has obviously been going on for some time these two chuckleheads have been thrown together <laughs> for, to do nefarious deeds and they don't get along and there's no willingness for either of them to really change who they are to make it work better, ultimately, which results in um, a hatchet to the neck and a trip to the wood chipper, <laughs> mm. which is just, yeah. Oh, that, that scene was gold. <laughs> I like that there's no backstory for them, though. We don't know yeah. anything about their relationship. We mm. don't even have a, oh, you always do this. Mm. You get it from their interactions, but we don't You get a sense that, that maybe they were just thrown together for this one job, but, you know, there is a... Perhaps... There, you do, there seems to be something like, yeah, there seems to be a relationship there, but it doesn't feel like something that's like, you know, decades old or anything like that. Yeah. I think it's a common thing in sort of art housey indie type films. Tarantino does it quite a bit, I think. Mm. You only need to know as much as you need to know, yeah. unless it's something like 
um, Marge being pregnant, yeah, <laughs> which is just completely irrelevant, and it's just there because it's there. But in terms of plot points and information, you only need to know as much as you need to know. I think that's probably a very Cohen Brothers thing. Is that um, in usually in storytelling, you, what you want to do is cut out all the excess bullshit. You know, you just want to keep it lean. You want to keep it tight. You don't want to have too much things that need to be explained because then you've got to explain them. Cohen's don't bother with that. It's like, oh, she's pregnant. Yep, that's cool. She's just pregnant. That's not a thing that we need to explore. Oh, we got these two knucklehead bank robbers, hitmen, whatever. Yep, mm. that's just who they are. Yeah. Mm. But then they also have a scene where Marge goes meets a friend from high school in a very posh uh, hotel bar and they have this conversation which adds nothing to the plot. It's probably more character development than anything. Mm. But and you go what was the point in that and sometimes it's just like that's just life I think that's uh, since that scene popped up I've been sort of racking my brain about what the point of that was and I think I'm at peace with the fact that there was no point yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a slice of life yeah. kind of thing and I feel as though the, but the, it's not quite slice of life enough that it's like it's not it's not um, what's the word non-eventful like it's not nothing yeah, yeah. it's still something and it's intriguing and it yeah, sounds like it's going to go somewhere it does because the character of Mike who is her high school friend um, is someone who is attempting to reconnect with with Marge hmm. they obviously have known each other for a long time and then it's established that you know he says he, he confesses his feelings for her after saying that his first wife died of leukemia and then we find out the next scene that Marge is in which she's on the phone to someone else from those days going oh no Linda's alive she's fine they broke up he's having a load of issues hmm. and I think it ties into a larger sort of narrative point or point of character development for Marge and mm. for the viewer, which is ultimately what the film ends on, which is her, when she's got Gare in the car after shooting him in the leg, talking about why are you doing this over yeah. just a bit of money? And then the very last scene of the film where she gets into bed with Norm and he's a little bit upset because he didn't get the 29 cent stamp, yeah. he's only on the 3 cent stamp. And she's essentially saying, look, we've got it pretty good. Like life can be, it doesn't have to be about these small things that are ultimately mm. not that important. And I feel as though the story with Mike kind of feeds into that a little bit of, um, you know, he's mm. someone that's from the same year in school from a very similar background, but he is having a not very good time. Mm. And I think that's a really important mm. lesson just in general for life. But I think for this film, it's something that the Cones don't necessarily do that much, which is sort of reflect on the wider implications of why are you doing this? Why are people like this? You know, you look at something like Reservoir Dogs, at no point does Mr. Pink sit down to Mr. Blue and go, but what are we going to spend this money on? Like, yeah, <laughs> it, it never it never happens. Mm. So just think about, because uh, this was kind of the movie that made the Coens big, wasn't it? At least uh, the one I know of that made yeah, them it was like, widespread. This popular. and The Big Lebowski, which yeah. were within a couple of years of each other. And I was—I think I brought this up on uh, uh, Burn After Reading. It was just fact of yeah, this is a very that's that was a very slice of life movie. Same with the uh, the Big Lebowski. It has a plot, has an overarching plot, but you never think of like how does the Big Lebowski go from A to B to Z? Mm. You know, and it's like no, it goes. It doesn't go from A to B. It goes to A to yeah, you know, if it mm. goes through A to B, it goes to A, C, B, A, F, D. It goes all over the place mm. to get to that final thing. And I think that's probably what they were doing here. Like, you know, that's like the proto of this thing. That that one scene was just them going, let's just have this scene. It has nothing to do with the overall arc, but it's great, uh, great writing and mm. great scene. And it just is 
it just works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, quick shout out to Peter Stormare playing Gay Air. He, yeah. Um, he's great. He's, he's, yeah. he's great, but that's probably the most about his acting we could probably say. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, it's not much, it's not really much. hard to do good subtle acting, though. Yeah. And we, one of the things that we were making comparisons to is that he's a bit like, um, from another Coen Brothers film, um, No Country for Old Men, he's got a bit of the Javier Bardem about him. He's got a bit of... He felt like he was the halfway point between Javier Bardem and Rodger Howard from yeah. Blade Runner. Mm. Um, but he... It, it, it's really lovely to see characters, sorry, to see actors who do a lot with characters that aren't very verbose. Mm. Mm. And the fact is, is that this this character is just, he's, he's the element of, of chaos. He's mm. quite controlled for an element of chaos, but yeah. you never quite know what his snapping point is going to be. Mm. But um, we actually really don't see it that often. He, it's almost yeah. that thing of like, you know, the, the murder of... Um, uh, was it Tess, the uh, the wife? Oh God, I can't forget the name. Oh, um, the murder of. I had it written down. Yeah, we know. Yep, William H Macy's. I'm terrible with names. The murder. Jean. Jean. Sorry. Yes. So with the murder of Jean, that happens off screen. So it's one of those things where we know he has that breaking point, and even when like you know the cop turns up, it's not like you know. The cop was aggravating him, but he was like an obstacle, and obviously that obstacle had to be something to be gotten rid of. Well, yeah. interestingly, you've got the while well, we're talking about juxtapositions, which obviously I yeah. seem to quite like. Oh, as I, well. love, I love juxtapositions. You've got the juxtaposition here between Marge and Gaia, who are both just doing their job. Mm. Yeah, and he's very sort of uh, cold and calculating. Mm. When you see him go over to the car to execute the people, you know you know exactly what's going to happen. Someone's running off, and he shoots them in the back, or shoots at them, and then they they drop, which is exactly what Marge does to him, funnily enough, at the end of the film, or foreshadowing. Mm. Uh, mm. But also, when he goes to the car and sees the girlfriend there, yeah. and she's putting her hands out, and you're not too sure, I think, at that point, exactly what he's going to do, because she's very, very vulnerable, and he just does what he needs to mm. do and shoots yeah. her. So yeah. I feel like, even though... Because there's no, like you said, there's no outbursts per mm. se. Yeah. There is a problem he is presented with and he comes up with a solution. Yeah. And even with uh, Tess, as we'll call her, Jean. <laughs> at the, at the I knew there was an E the in there. At the end of the film, uh, she started shrieking. That yeah. was annoying or inconvenient in that they were going to get caught. So he mm. killed her. Mm. Yeah. Sort of end of story. So really maybe the only point of snapping is when he kills Carl. Yeah. And that could just be partly out of grief. And that even wasn't snapping per se because he went out after him outside with the axe like I wouldn't yeah. have said that was necessarily snapping that was so much as he's now a problem for me and I yeah. now need yeah. to deal with this solution it's not like they were they were arguing and he snapped during the argument that's true it was following the argument yeah, it feels almost as though there's a switch between you're alive and you're dead and yeah. when that switch happens it doesn't go back he yeah. just sort of right we have to do this now yeah um, I just think it's really it's fascinating and then the practicality yeah. of the wood chipper yeah. you know it's not like he was a mucked up villain who left him bleeding out somewhere and they found him X number of weeks later and the body <laughs> had been mutilated you know it wasn't something weird and eerie mm. like that it was I need to get rid of it I've got a wood chipper out the back and that's going to make sense and mm. so he was practically disposing of the body I also think it's really interesting that at no point do we ever find out the identities of the three people that were murdered by mm. him in the in the triple homicide the state trooper and the witnesses we we don't see any grieving families we don't have any you know we got to do this for kowalski there's nothing like that <laughs> yeah. that comes in it's more just a matter of fact 
that a crime has been committed. Well, we don't even see the state troopers turn up until literally at the end of the film, where it's like when um, Marge is delivering him mm. across essentially the state line, and yeah. then you see the, the, the like was it three cop cars yeah. or is it two cop cars and animals? I don't know. Two cop like, cars and a van. Yeah, and it's just that thing of like they're like you know in the action scene that we never get to see. You know, mm. the, we're gonna kill, come and take care of this, and she's just like, "Yep, come along." I love it. So mm. good. Mm. It is. It is. Very, very nicely done. And now I want to see the TV series and just thinking, how the hell did they turn so, this into a TV series? Yeah, do you know anything about that? Can we so ask? neither of you have seen the series. No. I also haven't seen the series. Oh, there we go. what I do know I is know that Chris Rock's in it. Fargo, the series, is an anthology series where each season is set in a different time with different characters. Oh. oh. So um, there are very loose connections. <laughs> but the same location, Fargo? Fargo is... Yeah, Fargo is... Um, is connection is the connection is Fargo. Okay, but I don't. Even having, though this was in Brainheart, yeah, having not seen any of, of the show, I can't I can't say for certain that they are always in Fargo or that mm. they just visit Fargo once or twice. But I, I do know from people who I've spoken to who've watched the show is that it captures the feeling that this film engenders, but tells very different stories. Oh, okay. so like Billy Bob Thornton and Martin Freeman have a. Have a, have a pairing in one of the seasons that is very much like the characters of Jerry um, and Carl if they were thrust together trying to commit a crime. Um, so Martin Freeman right. plays this character who is I'm, kind of I'm in the Jerry I'm guessing he's role. neurotic. Yeah. Um, and then like you say, yeah, the season with Chris Rock looks like it's going back to the mid-20th century and is looking at more sort of like a criminal family kind of connected things. So Fargo is almost more like the, the the starting point where we can sort of tie in these different stories. Oh, wow. That's really interesting mm. because having known nothing about the series, I just thought, how on earth can you do it without Francis McDormand? Mm. It's mm. a bit like remaking Aladdin without Robin Williams. Yeah. Well, I did that and... <laughs> mm. um. I'm trying to tie it back to the last podcast so that people okay. will hear me and go, oh, he's really clever. We'll go back and rewatch that old episode. Mm. Indeed. I'll try and tie it back into Robocop a bit more then so I can get some... <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Would you guys like some trivia about Fargo? Oh, I would so love much. some trivia. Okay, all of this trivia is sourced from IMDb, so if it's not true, don't blame me. The first bit of trivia to do with the 1996 movie Fargo. Because my notes aren't loading. Uh, <laughs> well, I do have a little bit of trivia. Uh, do you know what uh, William H. Macy's first ever movie role was? I don't. So he had a short part in this movie called The, the Last Dragon, mm. which is essentially a exploitation kung fu movie made in the 80s. It is crazy. It is insane. It was probably made entirely by cocaine, and it is beautiful. It is terrible, and I love it. And he who, has like, who does he play? <laughs> he plays like the assistant to the main character who's like a MTV singer music video host. Okay. And he has like maybe like five lines of dialogue, and that's about it. Okay. Yeah, but yeah. it's like even there you go. Well, that's how the hell did William H Macy end up on this? Yeah, it all goes out somewhere. It's also it's a you know it's a mostly um, black or person of color cast. It's it's yeah. got a black lead. The only real two white people are one's the gangster evil guy and his cronies, and I was one other character who plays like the um, gangster mom, and she actually has one of the most poignant um, moments in the entire film. It's just like, what is with this movie? It's insane. <laughs> So there you go. Um, Joel Cohen had Francis McDormand and John Carroll Lynch conceive a backstory for their characters to get the feel of them. 
they decided that Norman Marge met while working on the police force, and when they were married, they had to choose which one of them had to quit. Since Marge was a better officer, Norm quit and took up painting. Nice. I really like the fact that it's the actors that came up with Norm used to be a cop. I also want to know mm. why one of them had to quit. Uh, that doesn't make any yeah, sense. It was the 90s. If they were having a child, maybe, that sort of makes sense. It As could, in, like, he'll, be he'll stay, he'll, you know, be the primary caregiver. He just but, wants to be a stay-at-home dad. Yeah. And mm. in fairness, don't we all? Yeah. <laughs> just without the children bit. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just want to stay at home. <clears throat> The snowplow that drives past the motel at the end of the film was not part of the script. Signs in the area warned motorists not to drive through due to filming, but a state employee ignored them. Uh, and they kept it in because it looked good. It does look great. It, does. it was a great it shot. It was deliberate. But uh, yeah, that was just somebody going, nah, I'm in a snowplow. I can drive anywhere. And then the car directly behind them. Can you imagine well. if you needed a second shot and you'd be like, I'm so sorry, you're in it now. Can you go back and redo that? Yeah. Um, no, it was who, who was it? It would be a Kubrick shot. It would have to be like like the same snowplow going yeah. fifty mm. times at the same speed, hitting, hitting the exact same mark. Yeah. Uh, William H Macy stated in an interview that despite evidence to the contrary, he did hardly any ad libbing at all. Wow. Most of his characters' stuttering mannerisms were written in the script exactly the way he does them in the film. Damn. How interesting. Because mm. mm. the Coens. I'm, the thing is, is now I'm forgetting is whether they have a reputation for allowing their characters to improvise or for having very specific scripts. And I, I believe it's think, the latter. I think it's very specific because I know um, that um, the Big Lebowski, obviously, there's a lot of very like unique turns of phrase and use of swearing, yeah. and I believe they were all very well written, like written very specifically for the characters to perform. So yeah, could be that. How weird. Uh, William H Macy begged the directors, um, Ethan and Joel Cohen, for the role of Jerry Lundegaard. He did two readings for the part and became convinced that he was the best man for the role. When the Coens didn't get back to him, he flew to New York and said, met up with them and said, I'm very, very worried that you're going to screw this movie up by giving this role to somebody else. <laughs> it's my role and I'll shoot your dogs if you don't give it me. He was joking, but they were like, you know I'll what? I'll shoot your dogs. Yeah. What? Yeah, William H. Macy is willing to shoot dogs That's for a role. That's not what I expected from William H. Macy. I... Well, he is He's married to a specific threat he as well. He is married to a convicted villain, felon, so... Mm. Hey, she only spent, like, 12 days in prison or whatever <laughs> it was. Oh, Felicity Huffman. Yes, yeah, yeah. so it was the uh, college yes. admittance uh, scandal. Mm. So, it, we see it as far back as 1996, the yeah. criminal element. <laughs> um, when Carl, played by Steve Buscemi, uh, when his character calls Jerry Lundegaard for the deal to be done, he tells him, 30 minutes and we'll wrap this up. From that moment on, the film's running time is exactly 30 minutes. No way! Wow. Yeah. I always like it when they do that. That's yeah. cool. It happens a few times in films, and it's always pleasant. Um, Can you imagine the editor? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I, having, having done editing and stuff, oh, yeah, I imagine the editor just went... Fah! Yeah, thanks for that. The scene where the couple tries to make a deal with Jerry in the auto shop at the start of the film, <laughs> where that man just gets increasingly cross, was based on a real-life encounter Ethan Cohen had with a car salesman. Uh, speaking about the experience, he said, that script is almost a verbatim transcript of my experience. Wow. You've got to have that top coat to, to get rid of all the oxidization. Yeah, it's, it's very important. It's very important. Uh, obviously, as we said, um, Marge was pregnant in the film. Frances McDormand wasn't, so she wore a pregnancy pillow filled with birdseed to simulate <laughs> the pregnant belly. Now, I was curious if that was written in or not. Mm. Um, okay. She, she says that she didn't deliberately try to move in a pregnant way, her movements came as a natural response to keeping the extra weight balanced. Mm -hmm. And it, it looks pretty convincing. I mm. wonder how much she wore it offset to get used to the weight. 
Maybe. And to sort of get the movements down and the... You, yeah, you wonder. Yeah, mm. You do wonder. The wood walking chipper. in the snow, that's tricky. Ooh, with that extra yeah. weight, I, I imagine, think, I think that first slip... The you know, yeah. That felt like an ad lib. It did, it, yeah. So it was like, there you go. Hang on. Was, was that... A, thank you, Coen Brothers. You're just going to ruin my life. <laughs> um, the wood chipper, very famously used to uh, take apart cars. Was that ad lib? Did they just... <laughs> yeah. They just chucked Steve Buscemi in there and they thought, yeah. no, nah, it's good, keep it in. Uh, no, it, it was not ad-lib. Uh, but it, <laughs> Simon's it, got PTSD no, from this now, thinking, not knowing what's an ad-lib and what's not. No, no, I'm just thinking that would be the funniest thing. Like, Steve, you know, we love you and all that, but can you just climb in? <laughs> yeah, sure, no worries. Um, the wood chipper is now on display at the Fargo-Moorhead Visitor's Centre. Oh, nice. So if you visit Fargo, oh, no. you can go see the actual wood chipper. Nice. To be fair... I don't know that Fargo itself would have... I mean, not that I've been to the town, but I don't imagine that there is that much else mm. that it is going to be famous for other than this film, right? Probably Pretty not. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, Frances McDormand accidentally left her pregnancy suit in her trailer one night, so that suggests she wasn't wearing it at home between yeah, the shoots, at go. least. The silicon breasts in the suit froze, and one of them exploded on set the next day. <laughs> this is, we're in the depths of IMDb. We really are. <laughs> oh, yeah. Look, you get some interesting trivia. I just... I just wonder what scene, and I wonder whether an expl- what would be the most inappropriate time for one of her breasts to explode in this film. I'm just thinking, including the Dink cast Pamela Anderson. Well, yeah, true. Yeah. I... Four crew members were killed today. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when would be the most inappropriate. I think any any time would be when she was sitting down to have breakfast with Norm at the yeah. very beginning. <laughs> just thirty seconds into the eggs, yeah. just. <laughs> That's some... Oh, jeez. <laughs> He's a good ex, char- Norm. <laughs> a real character establishment early on yeah. there. I like it. Um, Kristen Rudrud, who plays uh, Jean Lundegaard, is actually from Fargo. Mm. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, so they used quite a lot of Minnesotan actors in this film. But yeah, um, Jean Lundegaard is is actually a Fargo native. Mm. So yeah, that, that is what that accent should sound like. Mm. And she did have a very strong... Minnesota accent, yeah. which was wonderful. Can we say how how um, troubled that poor young boy is going to be now? Yeah, poor Scotty. He's, yeah. yeah, dead mum. He just wanted to go to dad. McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. But you know and what they get up to at McDonald's? Well. Yeah, which we didn't even discuss. Um, the fact that the to be fair, did... they didn't even discuss it. Yeah, yeah. It's like he gets trunked and that's it. He so got I, fridged, I, did he? I kept. Mm. Yeah. The problem is with when I was thinking about Scotty, my brain was always going, Scotty doesn't know. Scotty doesn't know. Scotty but, doesn't know. Scotty, Don't tell Scotty. Scotty didn't know. Scotty may never know. No, that's it. Scotty is going to need a lot of therapy to Scotty's, deal with what Scotty's he doesn't know. Scotty's dad and mother just disappeared. Dad, mother, and grandfather disappeared. Yeah. He and has just... no support network. He's probably going to have to go into foster care. Oh, God, this took a dark turn. Oh, do you reckon he will be the older brother to Francis McDormand's baby when it's born? I They'll adopt him. No. And there is season two. <laughs> I think he's going to have to sell his accordions. Fargo, no. Fargo to Fargo yeah. harder. Yeah. Fargo. Okay, this is, that's, that's a terrible idea. Peter Stormare later formed a band after this film called Blonde from Fargo. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if you're going to tie yourself into a bit of pop culture property, uh, that is the way to do it. Please tell me there's a piano accordion. I cannot confirm. We'll have to look at the accordion king. Um, (laughs) So this film does start by saying it's based on true events. Uh, It's not. Well, I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's not a true story, as the film purports at the beginning. Um, Joel and Ethan Cohen revealed to the cast after about three weeks of shooting that it wasn't based on a true story. Um, (laughs) Did it? I wonder how much did it colour your viewing of it first time, Alex? Because 
we were pretty upfront with Simon about the fact this isn't a true story. But when you first watched it, do you, do you feel as though it coloured your experience of what happened? I don't know that I remember seeing it or not seeing it, to be honest. And mm. I think the way that it is phrased at the beginning where it says, you know, we've changed the certain characters for anonymity, but otherwise it happened essentially verbatim. And then you go through and there's like a triple homicide. <laughs> I don't know. I, it Because of the farcical nature of it, I think it very quickly seems that that's ironically put at the front. Yeah. I mean, I think, because I can't remember how I reacted to it, which is why I asked you. Um, but I do feel as though it adds credence to the very unusual nature that the way that people act and the way the story is told. Uh, specifically also the very true-to-life stuff with, with Marge. I just, I don't even need it there because I think mm. it the purpose of the film or one of the themes that's through it is how these people are just living their regular lives. And you've got this very complicated farcical murder plot that's going on next to Marge getting into bed at night, talking to her husband about him getting on the three-cent stamp. You know, yeah. very mundane life-type stuff, mm. having the drink in the bar or, uh, you know, having burgers at a desk, getting the um, the worms for... She even doesn't even discuss her work day with her husband. It's no, it that doesn't seem like, to. Oh, interesting what you're going on. I was just a triple arm. So, oh, yeah, whatever. So there is... A, but it, that doesn't even come up. So at the very end there, when they were in bed and he mentions the stamp thing and she I says, oh, that. we're doing pretty okay. I was expecting her to turn around and say, you know, I caught a murderer today and mm. you got on a three-cent stamp. You know, as a bit of a... Yeah. But they didn't need it because no. we all know what she does. We all know what the whole film's been about. Mm. And we know what she's thinking when she's laying there and she's saying, oh, we're doing pretty well. Mm. She's just caught the blonde from Fargo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but it's not even like a thing of like, oh, wow, congratulations to me. She's just like, yep, yeah, that's my job. But that's just what yeah. she does. Like, yeah. it's very normal. So, uh, so I don't know that I need it to say that it's a true story because I think its charm is that it could be... It's not that far-fetched that it yeah. could be a true story, I <laughs> yeah. think. I don't know. But there are real events that this was sort of based on. Um, so, while the specific crimes in the movie didn't happen, the elements of two well-known Minnesotan crimes informed them. In 1962, a St. Paul attorney named Eugene Thompson hired someone to kill his wife, Carol. Unbeknownst to Thompson, the man he hired subcontracted someone else to do the job. <laughs> the second man fatally wounded Miss Thompson in her house, but she did manage to escape. She got to a neighbor's house um, and got help while the assailant fled the scene. The sloppiness and brutality of the crime attracted great attention. The, murders, the murderers were quickly caught and gave up Thompson, who denied knowing anything about the crime for many years afterwards. Mm. The other element was in 1972, Virginia Piper, the wife of a wealthy Orono banker, was kidnapped. A million-dollar ransom was paid, one of the largest in U.S. history. I can recall this. Mrs. Piper was found tied to a tree in a state park. Two men mm. were convicted of the crime, but were acquitted after a retrial, and only $4,000 of the money was ever recovered. Wow. Okay. Well, we know where the rest of it is. You've got to find that fence along in the little... <laughs> the little, the little ice scraper. little ice scraper. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of... There's a story that I think I've seen floating around, I don't know, Facebook or something like that, so I don't know how true it is, mm. of... Uh, someone who hired an assassin to do a job who hired someone else who hired someone else who hired someone else and they all took a skim off that, the top that does seem because, like a scene that does happen a, a couple yeah. of times and then the quality as you would know when yeah. you're hiring assassins you know I'm yeah. looking across the room and I'm getting nods yeah. across the table you yeah. know when you do this yeah. the quality is just not there no. after uh, you you got to go top notch no, really if, if you want something done right you've got to do it yourself exactly that is, that is ultimately how it goes I mean that is so true it should be a saying mm -hmm. uh, the wood chipper element <laughs> 
was also taken from a true event. Um, the wood. Sorry, what? The wood chipper. Yeah. Was, was inspired. Was inspired by not the bit that I thought that was going to be true. Uh, the true life murder of Helly Crafts in Newton uh, was murdered by her husband Richard Crafts in 1986. Although he disposed of her body using a wood chipper, enough tissue remained to positively identify her as the victim. Yeah. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Those things are... I mean, I'm not surprised that someone has put someone in a wood chipper once, but yeah. to think that it actually inspired that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They they were like, hmm, that could be fun, just having Steve Buscemi's socked foot still sticking out. <laughs> so good. No, it's one of those things where you turn around and go, so how many wood chipper homicides did this movie inspire? Yeah. 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 Uh, despite the fact that this film is... Partly set in Fargo, uh, none of it was shot in Fargo. Uh, the bar exterior shown at the beginning of the movie that's supposedly in um, Fargo is actually in northeastern Minneapolis. So no way near um, Fargo at all. Right. No. Um, in his book, Stand for Something, The Battle for America's Soul, Ohio Governor John Kasich spends three pages describing his hatred for this film. <laughs> Why? Well... Can you read us those three pages? Have you got I access to them? I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to read them all. But, um, <laughs> I'd kind of like to know what he's... That might be a copyright infringement. Did you say it's Ohio governor as well? Have yeah. You said? yeah. That's not even the right state. Yeah, but obviously some guy's like, I hate that this por- this movie might portray like middle America as this like Wild West homicide oh. thing. Or, you know, hmm. you know. I actually think it's quite endearing for middle America because if it's all like... If it's all like... Francis people, McDormand, people always do... Marge. Mm. put their own biases into a movie so they might not have noticed like the Francis McDormand character being mm. nice and wholesome they're probably just thinking this movie is trying to tell you that middle America is this cesspool it's like really? would you like me to read the, the some excerpt? of it would be great okay, if so you can get an episode so this is from this is an excerpt from the book I was in my local video store looking for a movie to watch with my wife Karen during one of our few quiet evenings together at home the clerk in the store recommended Fargo a perversely dark crime story that had played to generally enthusiastic reviews. The movie even earned a Best Actress Oscar for Frances McDormand for her role as pregnant Midwestern sheriff, and the guy behind the counter at Blockbuster assured me it was a great movie and that I should probably rent it. So I did. Walked right over to the shelf where they had their general titles, grabbed a copy and took it home. And when Karen and I got to the part where they chop up a guy in the grinder, we looked at each (laughs) other and thought, what the heck are we watching here? It was billed as a comedy, but it wasn't funny. It was graphic and brutal and completely unnecessary. And it rubbed us in so many wrong ways that we had to shut the thing off right there in the middle. Next morning... In the middle? (laughs) Next morning, I got on the phone to Blockbuster and demanded that they take the movie off their shelves. Oh, wow. He actually went on a tirade about the movie's existence. Because it was billed as a comedy and wasn't. No, it's like... And also, not the way Simon watches it. It is a comedy. It's a funny comedy. <laughs> and they're going, hang on. The wood chipper moment is not middle of them. They literally have like five minutes to go. Yeah. You watch 95% but, of a movie and now they're getting complaints. This is someone who's eaten the majority of their burger and wants a refund. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he continues. <laughs> I couldn't say firsthand whether the situation had gotten any better because I had taken my business elsewhere. This was after the blockbuster yeah. denied his Debacle, request. yeah. But from all accounts, not much had changed. So I called the store again to remind them Uh, of our deal and it got to where Karen had to tell me to back off because I was driving everyone crazy (laughs) I've made my point she said and it was time to move on so I did but not before the columnist George Will picked up on the story oh my goodness on reflection (sighs) uh, Kasich wrote 
He wasn't entirely sure that this story paints me in the best light, and admitted, in fact, it's possible to look on my actions as the rantings of a wild man. He concluded, Usually, I speak out against the status quo on behalf of the little guy, but sometimes I get a little crazy and go off about something like this Fargo business, with no real expectation but to let off some steam. I can't imagine it's all that much fun to be on the receiving end of one of my tirades, but I'm here to tell you it isn't much fun to be making the delivery either. So that's what John Kasich wrote. On the other side, (laughs) uh, Tom Hanks... (laughs) <laughs> considers this to be a perfect film on every level. Yeah. Oh, there we go. So, yeah. Tom it? Hanks said it, we have to accept it as yeah. truth. So, I think if I... It, generally, when I find that John Kasich and Tom Hanks disagree on something, I take Tom Hanks' side. Yeah. And in this case... Uh, yeah. yeah. Consensus. So, we're not saying, if you don't like Fargo, you're a bad person, but look at the evidence, guys. <laughs> when the world's nicest man on the... <laughs> you know, says that this is a good movie, mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. case closed, you know. Film. Yeah. Yeah. When has Tom Hanks ever been wrong? The final bit of trivia. The editor for this film isn't real. Uh, he was a fabricated creation called Roderick James. Um, but he was nominated for an Academy Award because the, the Coens edited this film yeah. together. Um, the Coens cooked up a scheme for the award show where they were going to get Albert Finney to appear in disguise at the, at the award ceremony as a fusty old British cutter from Haywards Heath in case their fictional editor oh, won. Oh my goodness. The Academy frowned on the ploy and fortunately, Jane's didn't win. So he never <laughs> had to see this. Yeah, because there's this weird thing around about that time where it's just like, you know, edit- directors can't edit their films and rah, 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 rah. Yeah. And it's just that... Oh, really? Yeah. Is there's... that where you have director's cut because that was them sticking it to the man? Oh, uh, director... Okay, if you want to actually know a bit more about director's cuts, uh, there's a video by H. Bomber guy who talks about director's cut and how... They- Director's cuts aren't usually a director's cut. It's usually a marketing ploy. Controversial. We'll have to take this one offline. Yeah, indeed. Um, but yeah, I just like the fact that let's get Albert Finney some work. Yeah, yeah, that'll <laughs> be fun. So with all that being said, let's score the film. And Simon, oh. you get to go first because it was your first time watching Fargo. What I would you give it out of 10? I haven't even really considered this. So I'm going to vibe Um, I really enjoyed it. Uh... I don't think it's a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. Oh, God. Um, I think I'm starting to get a reputation of really marking height on Oh, God. Uh, you know what? I think I'm going to give it uh, eight and a half hatchets to the neck. Yep. That's that's a lot. That would hurt. Yeah, that, I... would, that, would, that would probably cut <laughs> your head off. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's fair. Uh, what about yourself, Alex? What would you give this film? Uh, well, now that the score's out of 10, because in my head I was thinking 4, so I'm just going to convert that to a straight 8. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and say that it is 8 uh, uh, packets of worms. Mm. <laughs> 8 night crawlers. I, 8 night, eight crawlers. night crawlers. I couldn't think of anything that... What else is in there? I think I took the good one too I think early. you kind of... I was going to say 8 orgies out of 10. Orgies? I really like 8 no, no, no. orgies. Moving... Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, <laughs> what has this movie become? The only thing that it's missing... Oh no, I had enough of those scenes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> can I do that again? Yeah. <laughs> you may, if you wish. I'm going to give it 8 orgies out of 10. Excellent. Very... Very. Keep it in a... Very, very well said. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that would be funny if you rewatch this film and just imagine that for some reason everyone in Minnesota just says, Orgies. Oh, Over the blue ox. Yeah, kind of like everyone goes, Jesus Christ. They're going, 
Oh, jeez. Oh, Can I tell you, that's probably a YouTube video somewhere. It's <laughs> like the same people, person that does the Nigella mashup has probably mm. done that. Hopefully, yeah. hopefully it's our next videos. <laughs> For myself, I, I really enjoyed this film. And I, I, I'm kind of in a similar ballpark score-wise to Bird mm. for View. I think it's, it's really... It feels like the word shouldn't be lovely, but lovely is the word that I think yeah. does describe this. There's a lot of really lovely things to to this. I know that critics at the time were very positive on this film. Roger Ebert was was a big fan of this film, and um, generally it received very positive reviews. And 25 years on, it it really holds up. The performances are great. It's it's just a fun, cozy story about murder. Um, so I'm <laughs> just gonna... your friendly neighbourhood murder. That, yeah. sh- that should be the tagline on the box: a fun, cozy story about murder. Yeah. So I'm going to give it eight accordion king posters out of ten. Ah, oh, yes, that's a good, good one. call. I love that the kid Scotty had both the accordion king and, and white, white snake, snake on his walls, <laughs> which, to be honest, is pretty close to my musical taste so yeah I, I relate it to him uh, that brings us to the end of this review Simon and Alex thank you very much for joining me on the podcast thank you very much Stephen. thank you Stephen and for those of you listening at home thank you for listening in hey you have social media right you're a human being in the 21st century that's kind of how it works we are also on social media we can be found on Facebook. You can search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there and get news and updates about the programme. We also have a Patreon. You know, everyone's got to earn a living. And um, that's how this podcast survives. Uh, if you want to help fund this podcast and keep it going, then go over there and you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash podcast for as little as a dollar a month and as much as you would like. <laughs> and we also are available to be subscribed to. If you want to hear a new episode each and every week, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all of those services, and we'll keep on feeding you these reviews. In fact, next week's episode is episode 200. So um, if you like numbers changing, tune in for that one. Uh, Because, yeah, we're hitting the big 200, and we're hoping to do something a little bit special for you all. Uh, But that is all for this week. So until next time, goodbye. Oh, jeez. Bye. You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.